Welcome to In the Fig of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, and as always, Galen Stops. Um, we are um, in recovery mode the day after Forex Network Chicago, Galen. And, oh, yeah, indeed. And we're in probably better shape than both of us expected to be, <laughs> <laughs> but enough of that. Um, obviously, we did our Chicago special earlier this uh, week. It was published in the Midweek School Box, so this is for our post-conference session. Um the credit panel on our last day was um, extremely well attended, which I think highlights how important it is to people um, as a subject. What were your takeaways? You moderated the session. What were your takeaways from that session? Yeah, so it was a really good session. We had um, an interesting mix of, of people on the panel because we had, um, you know, both an FXPB, one of the big FXPBs in there, um, two major clearing houses. We had a user of FXPB services and kind of a tech provider. So everyone was coming at it from from slightly different angle. Um, we, we mentioned on the podcast in midweek about people. Uh, we joked about people splitting hairs slightly with the terminology they used. Yes. and and we called that panel. Uh, you know, is credit on a collision course with reality? And, and people try to argue that it's not on a collision course, we're just adapting to a new reality, which, um, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other yeah. at a certain stage. Um, but I, I did think it was interesting, some of the comments we got, um, particularly around people talking about being at a tipping point. Yeah. Um, where obviously, you know, we've had, and we detailed this in an article we published last week, where we've had... Um, several phases of, of kind of the pricing of credit and FXPB where, you know, it caused this explosion of growth in the market. Then, you know, people started to price it too low. Then there's this recalibration. Then SMB happened. Now we're seeing another recalibration happening. So I, I think there's still kind of been a question that we've talked about here, you know, do we know the right price of credit? And I think um, one of the things that got brought up was that all the innovation that we've seen in recent years um, has tended to focus on the front end. Right. You know, everybody talks about algos and we get, you know, plethora of you know data around our, our execution and front end. Is that the case, though? Because I, I I wouldn't disagree with you at all. But the only thing I would say is that we we heard we yeah, we'd go around the banks for our digital FX awards. And all we heard for like two or three years, oh, we're doing it. All of the money's being spent under the hood and on, on, on our processes. And yet, all of a sudden, they're saying, well, we haven't actually had anything to innovate in this post-trade credit space. And the, well, actually, you've been telling us you're spending three years on regulation. Shouldn't it have been a part of that? Yeah, but I mean, I just think when you look at it, right, I can look at the front end and I can look at, you know, how quickly people are trading, right? Yeah. The interconnectivity, yeah. the the way that they're analyzing and passing data, right, yeah. has become significantly more sophisticated. If I look at, at FXPB and how we do credit, credit and designation notices and all this stuff, right, name me one innovation in the last, like, 12 years, mm. like, around that kind of thing, right? There hasn't been... Well, they've learned to close people out a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but the other side of that, right? Onboarding. Yeah. Onboarding still it takes, is. like, forever at these FXPBs, right? I spoke to a... I spoke to... A, it's not just at PBs. Um, for our 20th anniversary issue, I spoke to a very senior banker. And uh, this person said to me, I said, like, so, you know, what's been good over the last 20 years and whatever, what's been bad? And this banker said, like... I still cannot believe it takes as long to onboard now as it did 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. So I think what was interesting for me was, um, you know, people, particularly at large institutions, um, it's difficult to change things. 
it's hard. There's, there's, you know, all of these big institutions are really an amalgamation of different yeah. systems. It's, it's painful. It's mission critical infrastructure in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so they, a lot of cases, they won't change things until it really hurts. Yeah. Are we being too impatient though? Yeah, just society in general. I know everybody wants everything yesterday, and it's and it's always been that way to a degree. But it does seem to me that there does seem a lot of criticism of the bigger institutions, and it's always about oh they're so slow. Is this just a reflection of the fact that there's a bunch of fintechs out there trying to grab some oxygen of publicity, and this is the easy way to do it, or is it general frustrate genuine frustration from users, or is it just a general impatience and like why have we not done this by now? I, I think I think it's the combination of so one of the things they brought up in the panel, right? They like the technology is there. Yeah, the, the technology to solve some of the problems we're facing yeah. around credit right now exists today in the market. Right? Yeah, the, the hard part is getting those technology solutions and putting them into places where they can have yeah. a meaningful impact. Yeah, right. That that is the challenge. So I think that's. I think you're right. Maybe we are being somewhat impatient, but I think the impatience is perhaps justified. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're you're looking, I can see a solution that solves my problem. Yeah, but I can't use it effectively yet. Um, I think that's maybe where some of the impatience comes from. But it was perhaps heartening to hear people say that they think that they're at the tipping point where, you know, we're going to actually see yeah. adoption of some of the, the solutions and new tech that are out there. Mm. Um, and and I, I'll be interested to see what that does in terms of pricing because, you know, the price of, of credit has, has fluctuated massively. Yeah. Um, we've seen, you know, post SMB people started to price in tail risk more, right? Um, one of the comments was made on the on the panel was that you can't price credit effectively unless you're efficient and unless you know what all the costs are. And right now, you know, we've got UMR coming in. We've talked about this before. You know, people will argue about how, how it's going to impact costs, but everyone... I think agrees that it will impact costs. Yeah. But you've got new technologies coming that could make things more efficient and cheaper. So w- we don't know what kind of the cost base is going to be of a bank providing credit. I'd say like, let, let's just say all these solutions get adopted. UMR actually arrives and doesn't get delayed forever. And in, in, you know, let's say four years time, right? I, I don't think we know what the cost base is going to be. So I don't think we know how it's going to be priced. So I think, I think we could be set for more changes yeah. In in the price of credit, um, do you think? And I mean, just to go back to your point around the, the the larger institutions, is part of the problem the broader market structure whereby these institutions have have, have been obliged? In fact, probably business wise, they had to focus on the front office because there were smaller, nimble firms in the trading game where it's costing them a business in some areas, but more directly profit. Yeah, when they're trading direct with them, and so as long as we have this this arms technology arms racing trading, we'll never actually get to the post race. I, I think that's a great point, and I I think you might be entirely right. This goes back to our conversation we had. I think that's a first. I guess that's a conversation we had. I think last week or the week before. It's been a long week. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. feels like a lot's happened. Um, but, 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 you know, we were talking about Market Maker who's saying how, how terrifyingly easy yeah. it is to get switched off to get from your customers to move from you to someone else. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and, the, and the technology spend that has to go in yeah. just to stay competitive. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think you could very well be right that, that um, you know, we might never see the, the kind of funding and development we'd like to see elsewhere. So is regulation the only thing that's going to really drive it? Would, would, would UMR be the only thing that actually 
forces the bigger institutions to adopt this new technology? I don't know. I mean, because the, 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 even without it, right, the business case is there in theory. Right? If I can, if I can implement new technology that lets me do things quicker, cheaper, safer, right? Then I can price better. I'm less likely to have a blow up, etc. So if I can, whether it's you know compression, how I you know allocate mm. credit, etc. I mean, if I can do these things, it can improve my business, and then I can attract more business. So in theory, you don't need to have regulation. Um, I think um, you know one of the interesting things. Uh, you know, we had two clearinghouses on there yeah. uh, who are obviously um, looking at uh, at how um, some of these changes are going to perhaps push more into clearing. Um, I'm interested in how the, the clearing space uh, happens going forward. Obviously, you know, NDFs, we've seen, you know, interbank NDFs is, you know, largely, largely happening. Um, the options is, is still nascent. But but even putting these together, this is a fraction of the overall market, right? Well, it's, well what's it going to be? I mean, options was 290, wasn't it? We don't know what NDFs was, but I mean, you're probably looking at 10% of the market most. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think the next logical place for, for them to look is to start looking at forwards. Has to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been arguing um, this one for a long while. Yeah, and, and then you go from yeah. addressing, you know, 5% yeah. of the market to yeah. 65% of the market or yeah. whatever. And those are, and those the pro- are and the, and the pro- and it's interesting because I think the problem in swaps um, is that the solution, and this might be another reason why things is not really moving on, is that the solution actually lies, or the solution is required in the interdealer market. Which is the bulk of it. The actual, you know, dealer to customer stuff is not really that badly messed up because you know they're, they're pricing in a stream, they're they're risk weighting the price. That's fine for that customer because they've got the technology to stream a different price to each customer. But the problem is when it comes to dealing with the other dealers, it's we end up back at the voice brokers. Yeah, and and that's fine. The voice brokers have their role to play in in, in the market, um, and that hybrid model is still very very popular. Where they you know, you've got a broker using um, a platform, but um, in the interdealer space, you look at it and think, well, okay, so you've got Reuters, and you've got a bunch of other initiatives coming up there. I'm not quite sure which of them is actually looking at the credit issue. I yeah. think I think they're coming up with we can build a technology or we can build a trading framework and maybe this is to your point you know, the essential point of this thing we can build a trading framework in which we can get these guys connected and they can show their interest in doing this but one thing they haven't solved is the credit and to your point what do we do once we've traded because I think you hit a really good point on compression you know how long does it take and this is no criticism of, of a firm concern but how long does it take to get all the data together for a compression cycle you know, they're happening, what, maybe monthly, maybe in a six-week yeah, yeah. cycle. We surely must have the technology to be able to do this on probably a daily basis. But we should certainly be doing it a lot more frequently than we are now. Yeah, absolutely. And on the clearing thing, I'll be interested. So I joked on the panel that I've um, I've written some articles that haven't aged too well on uh, in terms of, you know, clearing, central clearing coming to FX, right? Um but that's because we thought it was going to be driven by regulation. Now, yeah. regulation is changing things, and then that, that changes the economics, and that's the driver for clearing. But for talking about economics, obviously, once you're clearing, the more you put into central clearing, the more efficiencies you get out of it. So I think that's interesting in terms of, of do we reach a tipping point for certain products where suddenly 
more and more goes into, but I think it's also interesting is when you start thinking about what firms like CME and Deutsche Börse are doing, Mm -hmm. right? Which is where, you know, even if it stays, now they've got OTC platforms, even if it's OTC, but some of it clears, you know, do we see, do we see a funnel happening? And effectively, do we start to see, not because they're doing it deliberately and not because things aren't fungible, but because the, the capital efficiencies there, we see start to see kind of the vertical silos that these exchanges have built in derivatives, where it goes, you know, from the platform to the, to their clearinghouse. Well, you would imagine that would be the most efficient way of doing it and the cheapest way of doing it. Um, essentially, because there was a question yesterday to your panel um, asking about, uh, they, they use the interest rate swap market as, an ex, as the example, where there's different, you know, there's basis pricing dependent upon where it's cleared. And, my take from the panelists' answers were, no, not really in FX. Not going to happen. Um, maybe we need more uh, FX swaps being cleared for it to come worth it, to your point. But I look at it and go, well, hang on, at the moment, if I'm you know, bank A and I've got seven different customers, I know my exposure to those seven different customers, and I'm streaming them a different three, four, five, six months, euro, dollar, based upon whether the trade will be risk-reducing or risk-additive. So I'm already pricing in different aspects. And we saw Barclays in um, February for our Digital FX Awards, and they were, they'd introduced this RWA, risk-weighted asset pricing. Well, surely where the, where the trade's going to be clear is just one more component of that. It's just another another data point to add into it. So where the panellists were sort of saying, well, not really sure this is going to happen, I was like, I, I actually think it's already happening now, and I think it will definitely be happening in a year's time. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And then the, the question was actually directed to a, uh, a trading firm, mm. um, but, but their answer was kind of they couldn't answer because until yeah. they see – until they see this actually happening, it's, yes. it's possible to know how you're gonna, yeah. how it's gonna impact your execution. But I definitely think it's something to watch going forward. Whether we start to see like a bifurcation in terms of pricing yeah. between different clearinghouses, and that will have to be done by the banks because obviously the that, the banks are where the complexity is. Yeah, if it's a non-bank firm, generally speaking, it's going to be cleared. You know, the prime brokers they're not going to use up valuable credit with their prime brokers on a on an FX swap that they might make, you know, 0.1 on, and it trades, you know, once every sort of, you know, three hours. So I, I think that will have to be done in the banks. The the one last thing on this maybe um, to get around this problem is, should we even be trading deliverable FX swaps between dealers? Should I mean, Why not make them NDFs? Just look at it and say, you know, if I'm – you know, JP Morgan's dealing with City, is dealing with Deutsche, is dealing with UBS, is dealing with RBS, is dealing with HSBC. Make them NDFs. It's an ambitious plan, Colin. <laughs> I am nothing if not ambitious, David. <laughs> <laughs> ambitious, but stupid. <laughs> but I mean, I, I do sometimes look at it and, and you know, without wishing to go too old school on everybody again, the audience moans. Um, there were products in the 80s that were developed um, called exchange rate agreements and FX agreements. And they were basically the FX swap form of FRAs. So effectively it was a trade you did. You, you got you got the, the market risk, but it was non-deliverable. And at the end of the day, it was revalued probably to a benchmark. <laughs> and we can we can all enjoy the, um, oh, this is like $2 trillion worth of swaps being benchmarked on today's WM fix. Nothing's going to happen around that, is, is it? You know, so, um, but you could, but yeah, 
You look at the, do these dealers, does JP Morgan need to take delivery from UBS or from City for most of this stuff? Generally speaking, what they're doing, they're taking buckets of risk they've got from their client franchises and their inventory and they're and laying it off with each other. Well, if we can get this netting compression stuff going in a lot more efficient manner, strikes me that do we even need to trade these things deliverable? You heard it here first, people. <laughs> For- <laughs> Forwards market's going the way of the dodo. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes right, sometimes wrong, always certain. Um, Why not move on? Because um, another panel you uh, you did, we, I just wanted to briefly touch on a couple of things there. Um, and we did the ask, our second Ask the Experts session was with the lawyers or, and regulators. And remarkably, some of the more hotter topics didn't come up to were very late in that half hour session. But I was quite disturbed by a couple of things that were said on that panel, namely around um, how fines are calculated, and and these were in response to questions from the authority, and um, why there seems to have been a sudden influx of fines being levied. Do you want to run the listeners through <laughs> the context? Because well, I was quite staggered. I, so I had a few people actually comment on this. So one of the questions put to the panellists was... Uh, about how the kind of the billions of fines have been handed to banks have been calculated, and yeah, I, I don't know. In my head, I kind of thought that like somewhere, somewhere in the dusty vaults of the regulators, there was like a a formula, right? Yeah, or, or something like that, right? I, I don't know how egregious was the misconduct. How many people were involved in it? How long did it go on for? Right. Yeah. I, I always thought there was a bit of yeah. like a an, you know an X plus Y yeah. minus T equals Z yeah. kind of th- like. Thing, um, but the the suggestion from the the panelists seemed to be that um, you know it's a, a little bit more uh, lick your finger and, and stick it in the air. Um, you know, there were comments about um, it, it's kind of the suggestion was that it's, it's uh, to paraphrase more of an art than a science. Yes, um, and you know, there's one comment that often the size of the institution in question yeah. uh, is a factor, which. I was surprised at. Well, let's put it this way. I mean, I, I, you look at it and go, so you could have, and I'm not suggesting that any of these firms would ever indulge in any such activity, but you could have the world's number one bank um, involved in spoofing, and you could have an individual trader on CME indulging in spoofing. Under this, so the suggested you know, sort of framework there, the global bank will get done for like, you know, $200 million. The local spoof will get done for 10 grand. Yeah, they're doing exactly the same thing. Although, that being said, they did come after the poor old hound of Hounslow pretty hard, didn't they? <laughs> yes, yes. They, they went after him, his kennel, his that leash. One, that, was one, that was one of the ones where they stuck their finger in the air and they just went, you, yeah. <laughs> you over there, in the corner. Yes. Actually, it was a little bit like some of those like movies. Yeah, we're going, we're going after you, we're going after your family, we're going after your friends, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it's... Should we be surprised by this? I mean, I do remember back in, I think it was in the early stages of the LIBOR settlements. Um, it may have been the FCA or CFTC. I can't remember, unfortunately, off the top of my head. And this, as Scanlon says, it's been a long week. Um, but RP Martys or Martin Brokers were fined. And they came back saying, well, actually, we can't pay this fine. If, you, if we pay this fine, we're bankrupt. And the fine was adjusted. So I, I kind of get it at that level. Yeah. If you're going to be taking the firm out of business for me, then that creates 
intolerable business risk for investors, managers, you know, one rogue broker or trader and you're in trouble. But there should be a little bit, they should be a bit more clearer than fingering. You know. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'll be honest, when you sort of think about it a bit more, right, I guess maybe you do because, um, you know, the banks aren't, the, big, the biggest firms just aren't going to feel it. No. Unless it's, like you say, you don't want to cripple firms, no. but you need to make sure it hurts. So that pain point where it's going to hurt a firm yeah. but not cripple it will be different. Maybe. So, so now that I think about it a bit more, perhaps that, that does make sense as part of the formula. Yeah, although it may have just been barely explained. Um, what I would say is I think the South Africans actually got it right when they were looking at the banks over the manipulation of you know, chat room stuff, yeah, yeah, um, away we go. Um, they determined a fine on the earnings of the bank, the individual institutions for exchange business. I mean, okay, we're going to fine you 20% of yeah. your FX earnings last year or whatever. And you think, okay, well, that's fine because you're taking, you're taking a chunk out of the profits, you're taking a hit to the business, and at least we know that there's some sort of formula. Yeah. You know, the risk is always going to be there. There's going to be a, there's going to be a trade out there. It could be a bit dodgy, but you can make 25%. <laughs> you know, yeah. you get fined twenty percent. You know, yeah. you could get people suddenly trying to work out these decisions. Right? Oh, is it worth taking that risk? Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, referencing a uh, South African FX regulation. This is uh, a niche podcast this week. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are nothing if not global. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the South African Competition Competition Commission or something like that. There you go. Um, and, and around the enforcement question, there was a question about. Um, why there's been so many enforcement measures uh, by the CFTC yes, recently. Was it CFTC's, CFTC's been on a roll lately? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the question was, is this kind of the, the a signal that it's moving in a different, more aggressive direction under the new yeah. chairman? Um, and the response was, uh, no, it's a calendar issue. Um, <laughs> Got to hit my budget. Yeah. So <laughs> it, was it the end of their fiscal yeah. year or? Yeah. Um, and so that they're trying to get all their measures through before that. Yeah. So, so they, so they cancel in this fiscal year as opposed to yeah. next. So it's, you know, I know, <laughs> I mean, the wrong time to be in the market, right? <laughs> exactly. But that's just like, you kind of think of that, you think, is this like the equivalent of the trader sitting and like, I want to book all my profit this year because I'm actually looking for another job and I might be somewhere else in January and I don't want to leave my replacement with any leftover P&L. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it, it's quite disturbing a way because if you look at some of the fines like the New York Department of Financial Services and there was just a real sniff that some of the fines they were handing out a few years ago were just to fund their business or to fund their office because yeah, they are funded by what they, they get anything like they, they, you, when regulators are doing this to a schedule it kind of worries me you know we suddenly get does this mean that if you get found if you're under investigation in September does this mean that you're in more danger of being done quickly and they want to have a proper investigation. So they want to get it done by November. So I made a joke about uh, you being ambitious yeah. earlier. So, so one of the, uh, one of the, the more implausible questions I feel that this, uh, this week at one of the events after this panel was Colin. <laughs> yeah, it was so <laughs> uh, one, uh, one person at one of the events was like, do you, think, do you think we could ever see, you know, the big banks turn around and, and try, you know, and take legal action against the, the government's regulators? I was like, uh, <laughs> not in my lifetime. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, there's ambitious and then there's, yeah, what were you thinking, man? Yeah. 
Um, so at, at the, um, the event itself, one thing I wanted to ask you was, um, I didn't get to see your Algo session because I was doing video interviews in, a, in another area of the event. Um, but obviously, Algo is a big Big topic, big theme at the moment. Not big enough for you, Gavin. <laughs> Doing video interviews. <laughs> well, I knew I could ask you about it afterwards. Get the, oh, right, get, yeah. get the, the highlights package. <laughs> um, so what, what were kind of the key things talked about there? Um, it was actually... It was a good positive session, actually. And the two, it was another RT expert, and so we got a lot of questions from the floor on this. Um, there was a lot of focus on making sure people understand the controls and testing framework. There was a lot of interest in that from the floor. And that kind of told me that I think maybe providers generally need to be a little bit more transparent about how their algos work when dealing with the customers. And I think that's kind of happening. We hear about this when we go around talking to people, particularly at banks, about how the quant team now goes out with a salesperson rather than the trading team. Um, there was a couple of questions around sort of open source and how that will change the algo world kind of bothered me and I think it actually bothered my speakers as well in one way because we were saying like if you end up going down that route you end up you could end up with the risk of vanilla services and every algo looking the same and what I found really interesting was how um, the experts were saying when it comes to using like you know, neural, you know, deep neural networks um, machine learning and AI, there was a lot of like questions around that. So exactly what, you know, exactly where do you use machine learning and AI in, um, in algos? And the answer was actually not that much because none, a lot of this stuff isn't new. Okay. Yeah. The strategies that have been, uh, deployed have been around for a hundred years. It's just being automated. So you could argue that's not really AI or machine learning at all. But what was interesting was when I said, well, so where they're using these techniques more, is in the child orders. So you you, know, you put in your algo and, okay, I want to sell 300, um, and you're going to break it. It's going to be broken down, obviously, amongst a bunch of, tr of child orders, and it's using the AI and machine learning to actually nuance every single you know, individual execution, um, you know, raise participation rate, lower participation rate, you know, uh, Right, yeah, if you're seeing volume come into the market, take advantage of it or don't take advantage. So they they said like the AI stuff is coming in a lot more. So there's parameters, bang, and now let the stuff do its thing. And I guess it's sort of thing that BNP have been talking about doing for a few years now in their, their adaptive algos. Yeah. So I spoke to one person this week who was like, "Yeah, if they say it's machine learning, it's Python, and and if it's if they say it's AI, it's a PowerPoint." Yeah. <laughs> well, it could still be actually. Yeah, I mean, it's um, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a very interesting story going around about a relatively new product in the algo scene that isn't quite as automated as, as it is. But that's not for this podcast. I think I, we should say um, the other thing I, I took from that session was uh, everyone's obsessed with market impact still. Yeah. Um, and they were asked, the experts were asked, how do you measure market impact? And I think the first thing, I, the point I made was, well, actually, let's understand that there's no such thing as no market impact. Yeah. I love the way I just suddenly slotted myself in there as an, as an expert. Didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you two guys don't have to ask this one. I got this one. Fellas, I'll take it from here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to start, frame the answer for both of them by saying, look, can we agree that there is no such thing as no market impact? The minute you have any interaction online, you're creating a digital footprint in some form or other. And, and we did agree on that one. But um, we we got in some interesting conversation there, but generally speaking, 
the consensus was, and there was um, a lot of nods in the audience, it comes down to, you know, uh, how do you judge market impact from arrival at mid or mid at arrival? Sorry. Yeah. So you look at it and go, okay, I finished. Where was mid when I, when I started the order? Where am I now? That's how you measure it. And, and during the order, did it accelerate or decelerate? Yeah. Did I manage to actually minimize it by, you know, using the AI or machine learning or the Python or, or the PowerPoint to actually slow or increase execution yeah. for me? Um, so we talked a couple of weeks ago uh, about whether algos are going to live up to the hype. Yeah. Um, coming away from that session, did did it change your mind on anything? Did you do you did it sway you? Not really. I have to say, it's it did, but I still kind of look at this and think to myself: the customers that want to use it will use it. The customers that don't want to use it won't. So the growth is kind of limited at the moment still. Um, and I think there's also problems around liquidity. You know, we went into that in the midweek podcast to a degree, but, you know, the, there's a lot of LPs that are very, very good at um, identifying algos in operation because there are only a certain number of strategies. And to go back to the open source question, yeah, if we look at it and say, really, there's like three or four different strategies operating out there. Well, they're all going to be, they're all going to have a pattern as such and therefore a tech-savvy, well-connected liquidity provider or market maker should be able to turn around and go, yeah, I know exactly what program they're running. Just by pans, just by being, you know, top of book in, in one, you can sit there and sniff out a 300 million, you can sniff out a one-yard order pretty easily just by being top of book in one because you know you're going to pick up a pan at some stage. So I'm still a little bit, I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong, algos have got a place in the world. And they're an important place for certain clients, but I'm just not sure I see them dominated. I really dominating. I really don't. Um, I guess a connection from algos to another seamless PL link. You had a panel on CTAs, yeah. And um, well, all I can say, Galen, is um, they weren't quite as positive as you are about. <laughs> no, talking about the strategies that haven't changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, we, we've kind of talked about this on the podcast before, but one of the things that that CTAs have been grappling with, right, is when when your models aren't, when your systematic models aren't working, do you either, um, A, just stick with it and wait for the market to come back to, to your way of, of doing things? Um, the problem is you're losing money and investors don't like that. Right, um, or do you be you know adapt your models so that you you know effectively chase performance? Um, the problem is then you no longer serve the same role mm. you had. The reason why investors put you in the portfolio as a diversifier yep. uh, or a hedge against um, you know certain market uh, events is is no longer valid. Um, so I think as an industry that's struggling with that, um, one of them referenced uh, some numbers that I think it was. We've gone down from in the past five years, two thousand six hundred registered CTAs to I think fifteen hundred mm. was the number. Um, so we've obviously seen a pretty sharp decline. Um, there was also I think an interesting point there about uh, you know so when you get too big, it's it's hard for these firms. You know, yeah. AQR um, you know lost more money than than most people were 
ever manage. Yeah. Um, but when you're too small, it's a struggle to get funds because you might have the best track record in the world. But, you know, someone made the, um, the comment that, you know, these big pension funds or whoever, when they're doing their due diligence, yeah. he's like, what's the point? There's only five managers yeah. about five managers out there in the world who meet can all your text list your, yeah, your can tick box the volume of it yeah and, and yeah. meet your requirements I don't know why they do these huge yeah. manager searches when I could save them yeah. all the time be like here's the five just pick one of these yeah um, so I, I think it is a tough time but it's also I mean lots of these firms are particularly small ones pretty nimble Mm-hmm. Um, so they're looking at other things. One thing, you know, they pointed out that the trend still works, just not in some of the markets they've been trading. Um, and I was I think, wondering when you really get to that. Because I was saying, <laughs> you're, you're doing a good effort. You're, uh, just tiptoeing around one of the comments, which was, yeah, trend following is not working. <laughs> in these markets, <laughs> in these markets, yeah, Colin. Yeah. Um, but actually, I mean, on a serious point, before yeah, we, we rehash the, uh, our old debates about this, but why is it then? I mean, yeah, these firms are generally associated with trend following. Yes, the mood wasn't the most upbeat, but performance, as you gleefully remind me every month, performance of CTAs is actually not that bad. This this year, they're where's, having good, where's the disconnect? They're, they're having a good year thus far, although the panellists didn't seem... Uh, there was one comment that they don't think that September's... <laughs> Gonna numbers are going to be they're going to give lock back if their if their estimations are correct um but no look so, so they're looking for for new markets they're doing you know we had people up there um who are acting now in the crypto space yeah um where a lot of the the trends are working um where they're, they're finding good value and as and that's going to only become a better space for them to play in as you know backed the yeah. ice um yeah. launched their futures uh this week so if you see although what, i was seeing headlines saying oh the market yeah, bitcoin's gone down because the futures weren't received with that much enthusiasm yeah i think the, the, the physically delivered physically settled um, yeah. uh futures that are interesting we'll see i mean loads of people remember were was somewhat underwhelmed when CME launched theirs, right? Yeah, oh, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because yeah, yeah. everyone assumed because it's Bitcoin there was going to be yeah. all this excitement, everyone would rush to yeah. trade, right? But actually, you know, it's it's been a slow build, but for a new product, their numbers are actually very good. Yeah. Um, and, and so it might be the same way with that. So these CTAs are looking at things like crypto. Um, one of the people on the panel has, you know, figured out a way to, to get into China. It mm-hmm. sounded a little complicated, but but he's, you know, he's done it and the market's there. Are, are great for CTA to trade in. So, I mean, you know, they talked about how currencies used to be a great does, market for them the to trade. Does the Chinese government know that you found their way in? <laughs> <laughs> it sounded legal. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. But the, uh, the lawyers had left by that yeah. point, so I couldn't ask them. <laughs> yeah, it would, have cost, it would have cost him $20,000 just to get that answer. Um, but people, people there talked about, um, you know, things like executional alpha, Right, yeah. becoming smarter in how they yeah. trade, right? Because when you, you know, when profits are thin, you got to look at the margins. Where can I, where can I kind of save that extra? Where can yeah. I be more efficient? So I think, I think it is. Uh, Isn't a that currency time. overlay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think, I think it's still a period of, of these firms adapting. They really agreed that, that CTAs are moving away from trend. Yeah, yeah. the general well, trend, one might say, because it's dead going and it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> The index is still up for the year. Yes, exactly. I know. <laughs> Until yeah. the end of the month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing like a volatile return profile, is there? Um, it's just, so it hasn't been like a, a vintage period, but 
you know, the, the people that we had on the panel have been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, personally, I suspect that those firms will still be around yeah. and, and still doing this in, in 10, 20 years from now. Um, so, yes, it has been a winnowing, but I think, you know, there is still a place for these firms in the market. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, on that upbeat, positive note, we will end for uh, this issue. Thanks, as always, for listening. Um, we'll be back next week. I'm on the other end of phones again. Um, have a good week.